Father, we ask your presence uh, on this campground for all that's done, and especially just now in this uh, one room. We pray that you will guide and direct our thoughts and my words and help us to come away with something of value, practical value for your cause, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, let me start off with just a little bit of an overview because there are six sessions, which is, that's an unusually large number for breakout sessions. You usually you get four or so, but you know. Uh, so this time we have six, and that's nice. But um, human nature is human nature, and I know you'll probably want to you know, look at some of the others along the way. <laughs> so let me just tell you what's going to happen so you can make your best choices. How's that? What we're talking about, you could, uh, you could basically lump it under the general topic of the emerging church is one title that's put on things, mysticism, uh, the omega of apostasy, the alpha and the omega of apostasy, uh, pantheism, panentheism, uh, there's all sorts of titles. That's one, of the, that's one of the strokes of genius of those who are administering this kind of stuff is they have more names and they switch names about every six months. So, you know, things started off as the emerging church, and then it became the emergent church, and then it's just simply emergent. And I think that name's probably gone by now. Anyhow, if you were really on the on the in circles, it, they probably don't even use it anymore. So I don't know what they're calling it now. But anyhow, that's the general drift. We have six sessions, and <clears throat> what I am not interested in is a simple rehashing and the rehearsing of the sins of the church uh, and all of its members. Um, I find that possibly useful at times, but very depressing. And so I don't want to really spend my time with that. We will have one session where that's basically the focus, is, is kind of going through the more recent history. Because if you're going to implement any sort of an effective response, you do have to understand what's going on. So I think that would be the fourth session, if I remember right. Um, to me, if there's any one thing that I try to bring to this discussion that some others may not, perhaps, it's, it's a little bit more of a historical sense. Um, I can't start talking about the emergent church without going back and talking about Kellogg first, okay? Um, because that was the alpha. And only a fool will take a test and get a C minus and take the same test again without studying the test that he bombed, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and it's like, why would I be so dumb, <laughs> okay? So my theory is if, if we are in fact facing the omega, and I can't guarantee that, I think it's a, a distinct possibility. I'm not in a position to guarantee anything, but I think it's a possibility, so, you know. But if we are facing the omega, to do so without learning the lessons from the alpha is just plain dumb. And so I'm not going to do that. So anyhow, um, that's why our first one is called Lessons from the Alpha. Um, <clears throat> so, um, but even more than understanding um, the past and the present and realizing how fearful the situation is, and it, it actually is, it's, it's, a, it's a very dreary, nasty situation. Okay, uh, probably more so than most of you have any idea. <laughs> um, we have to find the, the right way to respond to it. Um, as I said last night, we responded to Kellogg 110 years ago, and we preserved the relative purity of our doctrine, which was important. But we lost the right arm of the message. And Ellen White says that when that happens, it places the worst evil on the churches. And I don't really want to do another century under the worst evil. So I'd like to get it right. So that's the, the general drift. Um, the last one, last two, I think, are how to respond and, and that sort of thing, if I remember right. Okay. So let's jump in here then. First, we start off with Dr. Kellogg, as a young man. Um, interesting guy, 
hands down the most intriguing character Adventism has ever produced. Um, just if, if I wanted, uh, you know, if I didn't believe in the state of the dead the way I do, and I just wanted something, you know, an interesting afternoon, I'd like to talk to Dr. Kellogg, okay? Uh, he's just the most fascinating guy. Of course, Ellen White is, you know, in a unique position as the messenger of the Lord, and she's fascinating for all those reasons, but just by, by matter of personality and involvement and, and you know, whatnot, he's, he's the guy, okay? Um, this, um, I don't know when this would have been. Probably he was, I'm guessing, what do you think, 28? Something like that, give or take. If he's 28 years old, that would put it in 1880, four years after he took over the management of the, what was known as the Western Health Reform Institute, and he immediately changed the name to the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Uh, made the word up in the process, and you know, that's just kind of the way he was. He's, he was a go-getter. Well, so if you're 24, 25 male physician, head of a medical institution, what do you think you're thinking about in your spare time? Getting married. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't say that, no, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, as it, as it turned out, after Dr. Kellogg had uh, picked up his second MD degree, uh, long story there, we don't have time for right now, he came back to Battle Creek and he noticed a young lady. New to Battle Creek. Her family had moved there. She worked as a copy editor. She'd started off as a typesetter at the Review, but now she was a copy editor, which is a, that's a, you know, somebody's got something on the ball there to be a copy editor, okay? She was a good cook. She was a musician. She was an author and a poet. She was attractive. The little ringlets were particularly, you know, stylish in those days. Um, she was gracious. She was the, you know, kind of young lady that a young gentleman might notice, shall we say. And he did. And then it was the end of summer, and he went off to New York to do two more years of medical school at Bellevue Medical Center in New York City, the premier institution in the country at the time. But, you know, there's, uh, the way these things work sometimes is a little cumbersome because there was another young man in town who at about the same time had also noticed this same young lady. And at the end of that same summer, he went off to California with his father. And so we have the young lady there, Mary Kelsey, in Battle Creek, and we have letters going back and forth from East Coast and West Coast to Michigan. Now, I heard a story once, purely local Battle Creek native gossip type of a story. Impossible, totally impossible to authenticate. So I don't vouch for this. But the story is that the young man on the West Coast had an advantage over the young man on the East Coast. And that is that one of his friends worked in the post office. <laughs> that would be cheap, really, really cheap. And I'd like to believe that the young man on the West Coast knew nothing about it if anything of the sort ever happened. But in course of events, after some months of correspondence and appropriate behavior and due consideration, Mary Kelsey went out to California and after some further period of time was married and became Mrs. William Clarence White, as in Willie White's wife. You know, John Kellogg had grown up a number of years in the White home. And Edson and Willie were almost like brothers to him. But you know, from that point on, John and Willie really never hit it off so much. 
Dr. Kellogg was a go-getter. And one of his basic assumptions was that second place is losing. So he didn't come in second. He just didn't come in second place. And so, in process of time, another young lady showed up in Battle Creek. She was a cook, a good cook, and a poet, and a musician and a writer, and a poet. I already said poet. And what else was she? Uh, and she was attractive and gracious. She was everything that Mary Kelsey was, plus. She had a bachelor's degree. Very, very rare for a woman in the 1880s. And in due course process of time, her name was Ella Eaton she became Mrs. John Harvey Kellogg. Now, none of that is particularly important with the exception of understanding why there may have been a little bit of a rift between Willie and John, and also understanding this one last point. She was everything and more than Mary Kelsey, but there was one thing she was not. She was not a Seventh-day Adventist. She was a lifelong Seventh-day Baptist. Now, to our ear, that's ugh, unthinkable. Okay. Well, bear in mind that even as late as the 1890s, there were actually high-level delegation meetings between the Seventh-day Baptists and the Seventh-day Adventists, considering the merging of the two churches. They weren't seen as being that far apart. The merger never happened, though, because the Baptists, uh, eventually, they sat down and started thinking rationally about all this, and they said, okay, so what do you guys believe? And they started hearing things like second coming, state of the dead, sanctuary, spirit of prophecy. Oh, yeah, the Sabbath. We're good on the Sabbath. What's all this other stuff? <laughs> what do we do with that? You know, and so they, they eventually threw their hands up and said, well, okay, we're out of here. And so the the merger never happened. Okay. But uh, Ella Kellogg was a good Sabbath keeping girl, but she was never a Seventh day Adventist. She was very good friends with Ellen White. It'd be fun to know exactly how that relationship worked out. But nonetheless, now Mrs. Kellogg. Well, we'll come to that point later. So let's carry on with our story. One of the most important things in Kellogg's life in under, to understand the story of things is this statement right here. After the meeting at Minneapolis, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man, and we all knew it. We could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. Okay, well, the meeting at Minneapolis was 1888. Yeah, Jones, Wagner, Righteousness by Faith, Law and Galatians, Ten horns, all that stuff, okay? Hey, yeah, that's kind of cool, you know? I mean, if somebody's preaching righteousness by faith and you're going to be converted by it, you know, why, why not do it at Minneapolis? I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of cool. But it raises a question. This was 1888. Dr. Kellogg had been the medical director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium for 12 years already. Uh, but now he was converted. And everybody knew it, and they could see it. So what was different? <laughs> I mean, did he stop going to the bar on Friday nights? No, he did not stop going to the bar on Friday nights. He never had gone to the bar on Friday nights, okay? It was a good seventh-day Adventist, but now he was converted. What was the difference? Kind of a fascinating little point. I, my first saw that and thought about it. I said, yeah, I got to find out what was different. Well, make it real simple. What was different was basically he started being nice to people. <laughs> and I know that's, that's pretty high tech and complicated, okay? But that's what he did. <clears throat> but now Dr. Kellogg was a mover and a shaker. Let's put it that way. And he didn't do things on a small basis. You know, so when he started being nice, it, it had a little different impact than, you know, if I started being nice. 
does that really have anything to do with righteousness by faith? That's kind of an interesting question. You know, I mean, come on, righteousness by faith, you know, I confess my sins, Jesus forgives them, you know, I'm just as if I'd never sinned, right? You know, so I'm justified, and it's, it's, it's a pretty simple thing, yeah? Well, in some ways it is. In some ways it's simple enough that it's real easy to get it wrong, too. Um, but I like this next statement. While the believer is justified because of the merit of Christ, he is not free to work on righteousness. Faith, as in this kind of faith, right? Yeah, right? Faith works by love and purifies the soul. Faith buds and blossoms and bears a harvest of precious fruit. Where faith is, good works appear. Well, what are these good works? Going to church on Saturday, that's a good work. Paying tithe, that's a good work. You know, but she didn't list those. <clears throat> the sick are visited, the poor are cared for, the fatherless and the widows are not neglected, the naked are clothed, the destitute are fed. That's what converted people do. And so that's what Kellogg did, because he was converted. And everybody could see it. Ellen White said so. And so, among other projects, which we don't have time to go through in detail, he decided to start an orphanage. He'd done a little research, and he knew that there were between four and 600 Seventh-day Adventist orphans in the United States at that point that nobody was really caring for. Some of them were in Catholic orphanages. Some of them were in county poorhouses. Some were being cared for by non-Adventist neighbors. Some were just living on the street. He says, I don't think that's right. And so he went to Ellen White, and he says, what do you think about an orphanage? She says, we're years behind. It's a great idea. We should, we, we're years behind that kind of thing. So the General Conference actually passed a motion and says that we start an orphanage. Dr. Kellogg, you, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, make a little committee, raise the, the money, and build the orphanage, hire the staff, you know, bring in the kids, take care of them. Cool, simple project. I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's not rocket science. It's not complicated to figure out. <clears throat> and so they spent a year trying to raise the money. And the church just wasn't, and the church members really weren't interested in an orphanage. The only folks that really noticed all the announcements, I mean, every week in the review, you know, we're starting an orphanage, please send your donations marked orphanage, you know, type of thing, okay? And the only group that really seemed to notice it all were the Adventists out there, or non-Adventists maybe in some cases out there, who were taking care of orphans. And they said, an orphanage? Pretty cool. And so, these little kids started coming in on the train with a note pinned on their shirt said, Battle Creek Orphanage, Tommy. Well, after Kellogg had about 30 little kids and no orphanage, he had a problem on his hands. And this really kind of burned him because he was right. This is something the church should be doing, and they weren't. And they put him in a really bad spot. And so he began to pray. He says, Lord, I need some money. I need a lot of money, and I need it right now. Well, spare you all the details, but suffice it to say that a lady by the name of Mrs. Carolyn Haskell, a non-Adventist, gave him $30,000 with which he built this. I don't think you could buy the windows for $30,000. <laughs> Every penny of that thing was from Mrs. Haskell's money. It came to be known as the Haskell Home for Orphan Children. It was built as a memorial to her deceased husband. He was a business guy who'd left her a fair chunk of change, and she figured she didn't need it all and wanted to do something as a memorial to her husband. It was a very cool operation, actually. They had uh, over 100 orphans, but they didn't run it as one big mass <clears throat> type of thing, which was the, the standard approach in those days. They actually had it kind of carved up inside into, I don't remember what the number was, eight or nine or 10 or 11 or something, individual homes. And instead of having all the one-year-olds here and all the two-year-olds here, you know, they would have these homes with 
an infant and a year and a half and a three-year-old and a five-year-old and a, you know, and, and they built families basically, and they functioned as a family, which you know the psychologists today would tell you is a much better way of doing it. Anybody familiar with ICC, International Children's Care? That's that's the way they run their homes, you know. So okay, well that's good. Let's go on. <clears throat> Dr. Kellogg was doing other things as well. He launched medical missionary work. Um, I would put in a plug here for some books that I can't even sell you because I don't have any, but I know they have some here on campus, so I'll see if I can't uh, s somehow get out of their supply here. They, they, um, I wrote a book called The Sozo. Some of you have seen it probably, but it tells this whole story. So I'm kind of rehashing that, and I apologize if you're already familiar with the story. Um, but he was doing a lot of what we might class as humanitarian work, you know, medical missionary work, just helping people. Kind of like the stuff that Jesus did, you know, where it says that he went around, went about doing good, right? Spent more time healing than he did preaching and that kind of thing, right? So that was, that was Kellogg's inspiration. He started the Christian help bands. He started the Visiting Nurses Association. He started these different things and had all this stuff going. And Ellen White had some very supportive things to say about what he was doing. The very work Dr. Kellogg has been managing is the kind of work the whole of our churches are bound to do under covenant relation to God. What's a covenant? And what does it mean to be bound? It's a marriage, yeah. An agreement, a contract, you know, you could use those, okay. And, and the bound idea is it's, it's one of the requirements of the contract. You might want to just ask yourselves whether we're keeping our end of the bargain here with God. The whole of our churches are bound to do, under the covenant relation to God, they are to love God supremely and their neighbor as themselves. This work is the work the churches have left undone. And they cannot prosper until they have taken hold of this work in the cities, in highways and in hedges. Then angels of God will cooperate with human instrumentalities and a religious system. You know, I'm, a, I'm more of a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of a guy. I'll just be honest. Some people are more organized than others, and I lean towards the less organized side. But I'm really fascinated. What would this religious system look like? You know, a religious system will be inaugurated to relieve the necessities of suffering human beings who are in physical, mental, and moral need. Hmm. my brethren in America. In the place of questioning and criticizing Dr. Kellogg, because he is doing the class of work he is, stop for just a moment, notice what she just said, they were questioning and they were criticizing him because of the work he was doing, this medical missionary work. They said, we don't like that. We don't think that's right. I think the doctor's a little off the beam. In place of all that, when you do your God-given service, you will be heart and soul engaged in doing the same kind of work, which will be of far more account in the sight of God than for so many to flock into Battle Creek where they become religious dwarfs because they do not do the work God has appointed them. Now, she probably wouldn't have said it with that tone of voice, I understand, but, you know, it would be fun to know how she would say these things. <laughs> That's a pretty strong statement, you know? And... Yeah, there was a tendency. This is, you know, 1897 was a, a particularly low point in our denomination's history. 96, 97, those were the years when you get the statements about who can now trust the General Conference Association as the voice of God, you know, those kind of statements, if you've read those. So this is that time period. Let's go on. The work God pointed out for those in Battle Creek was for them to leave Battle Creek and work in places where there was nothing to represent the truth. Thus, plants would have been made in many places. Plants as in, you know, churches or organizations or some representation of God's work. Let's put it that way. God has not forsaken his people. <laughs> but his people have forsaken him. Those in Battle Creek should have worked for the ones who needed their help. Dr. Kellogg took up the work they did not do. 
The spirit of criticism shown to his work from the first has been very unjust and has made his work hard. The lack of sympathy his brethren have shown him has prepared the way for the work he has been doing in criticizing them. The Lord has no, such, no justification for any such work. Had the church done in different localities the work given them by God, had they followed the example left them by Christ, there would now be centers all through America. Plants would be established in many places. There would not be a great showing in Chicago alone. The work would be multiplied in many places with the full cooperation of the institutions established in Battle Creek. <coughs> okay, um, I don't know if you've been following the dates. I didn't draw your attention to that, but this is 1898. And by this time, Kellogg had pretty well given up on the Adventist ministry. If I had to put a date on it, I'd say probably mid to late 1896. He just got fed up with them. It's idiots. Um, they don't get it, and I ain't waiting around. I'm going to do it. I'll do it myself. I'll show them how to evangelize the world. And so he went down to Chicago, and he started the Chicago City Mission. He, by this time, I would say his natural tendency toward pride was pretty seriously coloring his functioning you know, mental processes. He kind of tried to build up the Chicago City Mission, you know, is not this the great Chicago City Mission which I have built type of thing, you know, a little Nebuchadnezzar thing going on, okay. Um, <clears throat> and Ellen White was stuck in the middle of this, and that's the important thing to remember, is that Kellogg was not right in everything that he did. The ministry was not right in everything that they did. And you have to understand that if you're going to make sense out of Ellen White's writing sometimes because you read a letter written to, to Dr. Kellogg and she speaks very highly of the ministry. But you read a letter to the ministers that she wrote the day before or the day after and she's just reaming them out <laughs> you know, because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it was the other way around with Kellogg. You know, She'd write to Kellogg and she'd say, Doctor, the Lord has shown me you are in danger. You're doing the wrong thing. You shouldn't be doing this. You know? And then she'd write to the ministers the next day and says, you need to support Dr. Kellogg. It's almost confusing. <laughs> the past should be the subject for keen regret. The Lord would now have the medical mission work recognized as the helping hand of God, but this work has been carried too heavily in one place when plants should have been made in many places. The Lord has given Dr. Kellogg his work. It is a fact that our ministers are very slow to become health reformers. Notwithstanding all the light which the Lord has given upon this subject, this has caused Dr. Kellogg to lose confidence in them. Kellogg was a generous guy. He hosted, as in personally paid for, the general conference eight times, eight, eight different years. Provided lodging at the sanitarium, provided food at the cafeteria, he even did it one year after he was disfellowshipped. It's a little strange, if I remember right. I, I should double check that one. It seems like I, I think he did. And there's a little fuzziness there. I should double check that before I, I guarantee it. So don't quote me on that one. Um, and in the cafeteria at the sanitarium, you know, there was a, a line where you could go through and get your food. But way off in one corner, there was one little cubby hole in the wall. And you could go to that little cubby hole if you absolutely had to have meat. And it really, really, really caught Kellogg just boiling mad. When the general conference meeting would break out and all the ministers would come streaming out across the wherever, however far it was from point A to point B into the cafeteria, get their trays and skip the line entirely and go straight to the meat window. Oh, <laughs> it just, you know, just made him furious. This has caused Dr. Kellogg to lose confidence in them. Their tardy work in health reform has created in him a spirit of criticism, and he has borne down on them in an unsparing manner, which the Lord does not sanction. He has belittled the gospel ministry, and in his regard and ideas has placed the medical missionary work above the ministry. I've seen that in the censuring of ministers, remarks have been made which have not been to the honor and glory of God. It's not fair. You know, it's a safe bet. Kellogg was, as I said, such an interesting guy. 
about this time period, he took to re referring to the Adventist ministry as a collection of very mediocre men. <laughs> he, was, he was so quick. His mind was so quick. He wrote 40-some books in his life. And most of his writing, at least at a certain era of his life anyhow, was done early in the morning. What he'd do is he'd get up, get dressed, have a big glass of water, and he'd go outside. And out in front of his house, which he called the residence, he had a large circular area of pavement. And he'd go out there, and he'd get on his bicycle, and he would ride furiously round and round in circles to get his exercise. And in the middle of that circle was a stenographer, because he was dictating a book at the same time. <laughs> And Kellogg did not need a copy editor. I mean, seriously. It came out of his mouth, and they printed it. It was a book. And, and his books held together as well as anybody else's books. Okay? Very, very bright guy. Very, very driven. He, would, he, was, he was determined to be good. There are probably still today, I don't know the, you know, probably a few left, you know. But for years in the Battle Creek area, uh, a person could go in to have a physical, and the doctor would take one look at a scar on their abdomen and say, he says, Dr. Kellogg did that. Because he could sew you up more smoothly than anybody else. Any doctor in the area could immediately recognize one of Kellogg's incisions. He set the world record for successful thoracic surgeries without a fatality. This was at a time when they were averaging one out of every five died. And he went 124 without a fatality. So, you know, if you put yourself in his position, and he was clearly the most educated Adventist in the world, <laughs> okay? I mean, he had an MD, for crying out loud, from Bellevue, you know, and uh, Ann Arbor, you know, and the other place, too, you know. It's not hard to understand how he could look at all these, you know, farmer kids with no formal education trying to, trying to be ministers, right? I mean, just a bunch of wannabes, you know. Wrong attitude, but it's not hard to understand if you're at all human like I am, anyhow. <clears throat> Those who refused the warnings of God followed a course of action which brought its sure result. These influences have sometimes made the work of Dr. Kellogg doubly as hard as it should have been. They have led him to stand apart to some degree from the ministry. I desire to present matters as they are presented to me. Such a spirit of criticism and fault-finding has done the work Satan designed should be done. Dr. Kellogg has been led to take the course he doomed it, deemed it, excuse me, doomed it, he deemed it his duty to take. He is not connected with those who were not in sympathy with the work he knew to be of God. How do you relate to that? God gives you a work, and you know it's from God. The Spirit of Prophecy tells you it's from God, tells you the whole church should be doing it, you're doing it, and the ministers are fighting you. How do you relate to them? Now, we're going to have to learn how to deal with that. The worst casualties in the Adventist church are all people who basically went down because of peer opposition. Jones, Wagner, James White almost, Dr. Kellogg. You know, until we can learn to deal with even rank apostasy in the right way, we will have problems. We will be causing problems. <clears throat> Our people have not all appreciated as they should the man through whom God has worked and with whom he has cooperated upon the subject of health reform. They have not reason from cause to effect to understand how great was the blessing of the sanitarium to battle, at Battle Creek under the management of Dr. Kellogg and his faithful associates. Through this work, the truths of the third angel's message have entered where it would otherwise have been very difficult for them to find entrance, but the perceptions of our people have been blinded. 1900, writing to the General Conference President, seek to save Dr. Kellogg from himself. <laughs> you 
He is not heeding the counsel he should. He is not satisfied because the Lord has signified that the missionary work does not consist alone in the slum work in Chicago. That work, thought to be the great and important thing to be done, is a very defective and expensive work. Okay? So Kellogg had started off the work in Chicago, and Ellen White had supported it. But he turned it into this great monstrosity, this huge thing that was burning up bundles of cash and not really doing much evangelism in the process. So he'd taken something that was very, very good, and he turned it into something that was really very bad. God forbid that the purposes Dr. Kellogg has in mind should be carried out. Our work is not to be a divided work. What exactly was he wanting to do in 1900? Huh? Well, I don't know, but I think this is related. When the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Grammarians, what part of speech is that? It's a superlative. What is worse than the worst? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the worsterist. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's you know, and it's it's so funny because we've gone a hundred years without really feeling like we have you know? I mean, we went through the heyday, what we call the heyday of advanced evangelism with the worst evil in our churches and we didn't even feel like there was a problem. That bugs me a bit, you know? <laughs> I wonder about this at times. Okay, but that's not our topic. That's in the book, The Sozo, which I'll recommend to you. I do like it, actually. It's a good book. <sighs> the Lord has sent you, Dr. Kellogg, warnings, but you have not heeded them. Of the work you have taken up in Chicago, the Lord inquires, John, who hath required this at your hands? You have established in America of your own ambitious creating. As you belong to Seventh-day Adventist people, God has given you another work to do. You have not been called to do this work. The deceptive power of the enemy has led you to leave God's banner trailing in the dust while Dr. Kellogg has committed himself as working undenominationally in a work which has taken the money from a people who are decidedly a denominational people. Isaiah 58 does not sustain you in the kind of work you are doing, and in expending God's revenue on that class of people found in the slums, there we obtain the least results for labor put forth. If you only read these statements, you would say, we should never work in the slums. I mean, that's, come on, that's what she just said. We don't do slum work. But you know, there's other places where she says, yes, of course there are supposed to be people working for all levels, even the very lowest levels of society. But it's not all of our work, and that's what Kellogg was trying to do. He was, Kellogg was such a good fundraiser. It was a problem, because he was like vacuuming up all the available finances, okay? And burning it down in Chicago, okay? The work has been hindered financially. The cause of God should have a different showing, far different. And who is to blame for this hindrance? You give heed to men, not of our faith. You delight to show what you have done and by a free use of money that was not yours to handle in a way that God has not appointed. God never set you to engage in gathering means and in doing the work the Salvation Army are doing. Let them work in that line and you attend to your appointed work. This is another area where we take it and blow it out of context and over-apply it, okay? The statement is valid. But it does not mean that anything the Salvation Army ever does, we should never do. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> there were a number of things that the Salvation Army did, one of which at that time was to attract attention to their... Uh, meetings and such things by the use of what they called a gospel wagon. The gospel wagon, the Salvation Army version, turned out to be pretty much identical to the imitation Adventist version that Kellogg had going for a little while. The gospel wagon was just a big open wagon drawn through the streets of the city with a, a band sitting there playing, you know, um, making as much racket as they could, and somebody walking down the streets passing out handbills, you know, come to, uh, come to the service, and type of thing. Okay. Salvation Army did that. They were really into that. The Salvation Army was, was really pretty Pentecostal almost at that time. Not so much if I'm, I don't, I'm not that familiar with what they do now, but I don't think they are as nearly 
Pentecostal as they were at that time. So there's all sorts of things you can take this to apply to, but what we've done is we've taken it and we said, we don't work for poor people. Pretty much, boom, you know, and that's, that's a mistake. We do, we should work for the poor and the lower middle class and the middle middle class and the upper middle class and the lower upper class and the middle upper class and the upper upper class. We should work for everybody, okay? But that's another issue. Let's go on. God does not endorse the efforts. Now, stop for just a moment. 1903, just notice that date. General Conference Bulletin, April 6, 1903. In the General Conference, in a public meeting, Ellen White says, God does not endorse the efforts put forth by different ones to make the work of Dr. Kellogg as hard as possible in order to build themselves up. God gave the light on health reform, and those who rejected it, rejected God. One and another who knew better said, it all came from Dr. Kellogg, and they made war upon him. This had a bad influence on the doctor. He put on the coat of irritation and retaliation. God did not want him to stand in a position of warfare, and he does not want you to stand there. We've got to learn how to respond properly to apostasy. Now, here's what's the most fascinating thing about this is that date. This is a full year after the writing of the book, Living Temple. She's standing up in the general conference session and the whole sermon, not the whole sermon, a whole section of the sermon, she's defending a pantheist. She is not defending his pantheism. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, the word pantheism does not show up once in the General Conference Bulletin of 1903. It was not the issue at that time. But our interest now, I had to lay all this back on, because you have to understand that Kellogg had a good side to him. That's the baby that got thrown out with the bathwater. Keep an eye on the baby. They don't swim well, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and if you throw them out a third-story window, they don't land well either. So anyhow, I don't know. But, you, know you can do whatever you want with that illustration. <laughs> but um, you got to see, though, just, you know, in order to understand the alpha, you have to understand the, the influence that, that Kellogg had and the value that he offered the church in order to appreciate the damage that he did the church. <clears throat> now we do a flashback. Before my husband's death, this is Ellen White writing, of course, James died in 1882. So how far before, I don't know. But let's just make it simple, and we'll just make it early 1882. Why don't we make it February 18, 1882? Let's just do that. <laughs> what happened? I punched the wrong button. There we go. Before my husband's death, Dr. Kellogg came to my room to tell me that he had great light. He sat down and told me what it was. It was similar to some of the views that he has presented in Living Temple. I said, those theories are wrong. I've met them before. I had to meet them when I first began to travel. Ministers and people were deceived by these sophistries. They lead to making God a non-entity and Christ a non-entity. We are to rebuke these theories in the name of the Lord. As I talked about these things, laying the whole matter before Dr. Kellogg and showing what the outcome of receiving these theories would be, he seemed to be dazed. I said, never teach such theories in our institutions. Do not present them to the people. Where do you get these ideas? Just a quick question. How many in the audience are single? Hands up, please. Single, as in not married. OK. This next lesson is for you. Where did Kellogg get his pantheism? 
Abram Herbert Lewis, DD, LLD, editor of the Sabbath Recorder, professor of homiletics and church history at Alfred University, the Seventh-day Baptist University that Mrs. Kellogg got her degree from. Lifelong friend of the Eaton family, frequent visitor in the Kellogg home. He was a pantheist. You know, kind of a muddy, messy, gooky, you know, mush-headed, quote-unquote, Christian pantheist. But in all probability, that's where Kellogg's pantheism primarily came from. <clears throat> this account is from a guy by the name of Sanford P.S. Edwards. Fascinating guy. Knew everybody that was anybody in the church in his day. Worked for Kellogg, worked for Butler, worked with Ellen White, worked with everybody. Worked with Haskell. He was fascinating. He wrote his memoirs of the Adventist pioneers. It's great. <laughs> it's, just, it's just fascinating insights. He tells this story. One day, a white-bearded gentleman, that would be the one, came to my classroom at Battle Creek College and took a seat with the class. It was H. Lewis, D.D., L.L.D., etc. The editor of the Sabbath Recorder, Church Paper, Seventh-day Baptist. After the class, Dr. Lewis came over and shook hands and said, you gave a wonderful talk to your class. Is this not an unusual approach to a scientific subject like physiology? Doctor, do you not think that you may be stretching a point in emphasizing the exact features of God's being? He is a spirit. You talk of his hands, his feet, and eyes, and ears, and tongue, just, just like he were a physical being. God is a presence, an essence. He is everywhere, in the trees, in the flowers, the food we eat. Are you not in danger of getting too narrow a view of God? After a minute's thought, I answered, admitting for the time being what you have said about God, to me, he has hands. He holds my hand. He has feet. I walk in his footsteps. He has ears. He hears my prayers. He has eyes. He sees my sins and forgives them, my weakness and gives me strength, my heart yearning and gives me grace. God is a person to me. The discussion ended with my having learned where Dr. Kellogg, George Fifield, W.W. W. Prescott, M. Bessie DeGraw, and E.J. Wagner got some, if not much, of their pantheism. Dr. Lewis was once Mrs. Kellogg's pastor and president of Alfred University. He's wrong. He never was president. He was professor, the head of a department, where she got her degree. His paper, the Sabbath Recorder, was steeped in pantheism. It came regularly to the Kellogg home. George Fifield's book, God is Love, is as strongly pantheistic as Living Temple. He was closely tied to Seventh-day Baptists, and when dropped by the Seventh-day Adventists, he became the pastor of the Seventh-day Baptist Church in Battle Creek, of which Dr. Kellogg was a member. Now, <clears throat> I have to expand the historical account a little bit here, because the standard Adventist history that you're going to read paints the picture that Dr. Kellogg was this heretical pantheist. And we kicked him out because of it. There is some truth to that. But that's not the picture. Do you see these names? Those are all Adventists. Let's go on with this account. I'll talk about this some more. I personally was taught more pantheism by W.W. W. Prescott than by Dr. Kellogg. I never believed or taught it, but, it he, but was the target for repeated talks and studies by, Mrs., or by Professor and Mrs. Prescott for several years before 1904, never after that. <clears throat> Pantheism was not a perceived problem until the Living Temple was, was written. But, S.P.S. Edwards, Sanford P.S. Edwards, yeah. Um, it'll be uh, credited at the end of the, the section there, yeah. Um, <clears throat> there were people preaching pantheism, 
I don't have it here. It's in a book that'll be out in a couple of months <laughs> to show you, you know, to show the paint this whole picture on a larger scale. Um, Wagner said some really unfortunate things. Prescott said some really <coughs> unfortunate things. Fifield, I never did track down any examples of what Fifield was saying. I'd like to get his book sometime, but I wouldn't read it if I did. That's the problem. I've got Living Temple, and I've never read it. I've refused to read it because I just don't want to read it. But, you know, it's this real bind of knowing what they say without reading it. But, you know, so far I've, I've held with the not reading it part because the Spirit of Prophecy said, don't read that trash. So I said, okay, that's good enough for me. Anyhow, <laughs> here's what happened. When Kellogg, okay, the sanitarium burnt down. I have a picture of that someplace, but it'll come later. Sanitarium burnt down February 18, 1902. That's why I said, let's just pretend that Kellogg talked to Alan White about his pantheism on February 18, 1882, so 20 years before. Kellogg had just finished writing Living Temple. And he said, hey, it's cool. I got a book. Here's what we'll do. We'll get the publishing house to print it for free, and we'll get the Adventists all around the country to sell it for free, and all give my royalties, and all the profit we can squeeze out of the thing will go into rebuilding the, the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Well, that seemed like a pretty good idea, and so General Conference Committee thought about it, and Kellogg submitted the manuscript, and there was some discussion on the committee that they weren't entirely comfortable with this manuscript. So they said, well, let's, let's appoint a subcommittee that's what committees always do, right? Committees, committees never actually get anything done. <laughs> so, so they said, let's appoint a subcommittee. And so they picked a, a committee of four. Kellogg, McGann, David Paulson, W.W. W. Prescott. And they said, you guys figure this out. Tell us whether it's a good book or not. They came back with two reports. The majority report, Kellogg, McGann, and Paulson, said, it's a wonderful book. Print it. The minority report, Prescott, said, I hope that such material never comes through an Adventist press. Now, this was a big step for Prescott because just mere, what? Maybe a year, maybe, he'd been teaching the same stuff. Exactly what woke him up, I don't know. That would be fun to know. Well, this led to a kind of a knockdown drag out on the General Conference Committee. Working through the summer of 1902. But it was never the biggest issue. The biggest issue was right during that summer is that Kellogg and Daniels both ended up in England. And Kellogg had found this beautiful property for a sanitarium outside of London. That was the most marvelous thing. He wanted to buy it. And Kellogg said, no, we're in debt already. We can't take on any more debt. And Kellogg says, we've always taken on debt. And he says, yeah, we've never paid it off. That's why we're not taking any more. You know? And they argued about it for four hours in the men's restroom in a third story, uh, third story of some building. And Daniel says that it got to the point I was seriously thinking about jumping out the window. And uh, <clears throat> this was the perceived issue. Well, <clears throat> the conference, the conference committee, finally decided they would not print the book. That would have been probably, I'm guessing, I don't know exactly, maybe September, October of 1902. Kellogg chalked it up as one more stupid decision by stupid ministers. And he said, okay, okay, you won't print the book. I'll print it myself. And he went to the largest publishing house west of the Mississippi to have it printed. And they said, happily, we'll print that. You know what the largest printing house west of the Mississippi in those years was? The Review and Herald. Oh. <laughs> 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 
So the general conference says, no, we ain't going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And the Review and Herald says, sure, we'll print it. The printing plates were all made, and they were sitting on the floor of the press room floor. That's dumb. They were sitting on the floor of the press room. They were sitting on the press room floor. Anyhow, you know where they were. <laughs> and um, on the night of December 30, 1902, and I suppose they were probably going to take New Year's Day off. I don't know whether they celebrated pagan holidays like that at the Review or not at that time. Uh, but it never happened, because that was the night the Review and Herald burned down. In 1904, well, okay, that was the end of 1902. You kind of got to, sorry, I'm going to drag you through the history on this. You got to understand this or it doesn't make sense and you'll be thinking wrong things. What time is it? Somebody, somebody, t okay. <coughs> it's 1046. We are supposed to take a break, right, for 15 minutes or something like that? Okay. I'm going to go a little long. The next one's a little bit short. Is that, is that fair? Okay. Okay, so here's what happened. This whole thing went through 1903. There was a general conference session in 1903. Not a word was said about pantheism at that general conference session. That's where Ellen White stood up and defended Kellogg. In the fall of 1903, Kellogg and Paulson and um, probably Crest to some degree and other of the physicians and some of the educators, Sutherland and McGann, were clearly on Kellogg's side at that point. Uh, because Kellogg had been a good friend to them. And the truth was, the general conference guys were not always being fair or nice to Kellogg. And he had a lot of people who were sympathetic to him because they knew, you know, if you got a bully on the block, the bully takes care of one kid and then he picks on you next, you know, type of thing. And so they weren't, they weren't very happy about this. But that 1903... Um, autumn Council session back at Tacoma Park. That's when Ellen White writes the iceberg vision, right? If you've heard that story, hopefully, probably, okay? <clears throat> Says, meet it. It's another good book, by the way. I'll just put in a little quick plug there for Elder Rick Howard's new book, Meet It. It's kind of on this same topic. Copies yeah, copies are available <laughs> for sale. There you go, okay. Unless Danny wants to give them away. <laughs> 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 okay, uh, it's, worth, it's worth buying it, though. Okay. <laughs> That's when that happened, is in the fall of 1903. Okay. There was one last good, decent chance to try and save Kellogg. That came at what was known as the, um, the Berrien Springs meeting of 1904. I forget the exact dates. Very tense situation that was held at Berrien Springs, where the new school was, right, Emmanuel Missionary College. Elder, doctor, professor, whatever he was at that point, I guess he was professor. Uh, McGann's wife died the day before the meetings were to start, largely because she'd had a nervous breakdown because of opposition from other Adventists. Um, very tense meeting. And in that meeting... I would say probably unfortunately, although God in his wisdom may see there was value in it that I don't. In that meeting, Prescott stood up and attacked Kellogg on pantheism. And that's when pantheism actually became a big issue. It hadn't been the focal point issue up until that time. So that's why he says, Professor and Mrs. Prescott, yeah, we're working on him on the pantheism thing, but never after 1904. Let's go on. We've got to get to about five more slides. Here is the connection. Professor Prescott and Dr. E.J. Wagner were in London for years in the 1890s. I have good evidence that while they were, while, that while there, they were closely associated with the Seventh-day Baptists, who were an old established body in England. They both came back to the U.S. in 1900, strongly indoctrinated with pantheism, and Knowing of my teaching in the college along spiritual lines, it's a risky business, and they made desperate attempts repeatedly to get me to follow their line in my teaching. From this, you must gather that to my certain knowledge, Dr. Kellogg was not alone in going astray on some doctrinal points. He and some of his immediate associates were the only ones who got the blame and refused to recant. Now, 
you could look at this and you could say, well, Dave's saying that pantheism wasn't a big issue. No, I'm not saying that. It was a huge issue. It was an under-recognized issue. Follow the difference? Too many people just didn't see that there was a problem here. <clears throat> That's the sanitarium burning down. And that's the Living Temple, as it was published. <clears throat> Ellen White's reaction to this. To me, it seems passing strange or beyond weird, right? That some who have been long in the work of God cannot discern the character of the teaching in Living Temple in regard to God. I thought that the problems in Living Temple would surely be discerned. It would not be necessary for me to say anything about it. But since the claim has been made that the teachings of this book can be sustained by statements from my writings, I am compelled to speak in denial of this claim. And that's where we're going to stop for this session. So we're not too much over time. Let's bow our heads. Father, we pray that you would be with us and guide our thoughts and our perceptions and understanding of things. We want to be wise, Father. We want to see those things which are blessings and those things which are weaknesses to your people. Direct us in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.